So it takes him a while to finally agree to do it. But once he does, and he's finally in the studio and they're laying down the tracks, at one point he stops and he goes, hey, you know what we actually need here is Michael McDonald. (laughs) That's awesome. Welcome to another episode of 1001 Album Complaints, the show where musicians and friends get together to break down a classic album from the list of 1001 albums you must hear before you die. We'll give you a little context on the artist, we'll share some interesting stories that went into making the album, we'll probably complain a little bit, and at the end we'll vote on whether or not you must listen to this album before you die. I'm Alan. I've been playing music for about 20 years now and have been complaining about music for about twice as long. So... Gives you an idea of what you're in store for this week. Um, But this week, I'm excited to discuss an album that features not only two of the biggest rappers of the day, but also two of the biggest yacht rock singers of the day, if you can believe it. And it's from an artist named Stephen Lee Bruner. Never heard of him? Actually, you probably have, because he goes by the stage name Thundercat. And we're going to be discussing his third solo studio album entitled Drunk. So with that, let's give you a little taste of the record, starting with the track, Captain Stupido. Comb your beard, brush your teeth, still feel weird. Feed your meat, go to sleep. Let's, uh, let's get things started by introducing our cast of characters this evening by way of a tweet-length review of Thundercats Drunk. Let's start with you, Rob. Hey, yeah, thanks, Alan. This is Rob here. My tweet-length review of Drunk is, Smooth-voiced weirdo combines yacht rock with math rock to make 23 tracks out of basically two ideas. <laughs> By the way, I didn't need the album title to tell me that Thundercat was intoxicated. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Adam, what you got for us? I'm going to repeat some of Rob's themes, but I'll see what I can do here. So, hey, everyone, this is Adam. And seeing as Alan mentioned the Yacht Rock thing, I'm going to do my tweet in the style of Yacht Rock. You don't know him, but he's from Compton. He makes music and it's weird as hell. I kind of think he's from another world. This album features me and Pharrell. (laughs) You put 23 songs onto a single disc. All right, then I'll stop there. My my alternate review was Meow Meow. I, I think Adam took the album title a little too literally th- this week. <laughs> I'm only three drinks in, so give me a break. All right. Well, let's uh, we'll, we'll take a shot every time a, a falsetto happens in this album. <laughs> or a Michael what... McDonald impression <laughs> rears its ugly blue-eyed head. Yeah, I was expecting you to bust into to Peg. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, my my tweet length review is if you're going to make an album full of random existential musings, hilarious non sequiturs, ADD songwriting delivered in a package of smooth and psychedelic ear candy. I actually wonder if stoned would have been a more accurate album title. (laughs) (laughs) Accurate. Yes. All right. So my experience with this album, I have heard this before. But it's been a few years like I kind of came to this a few years ago, really just through my interest in playing bass and wanting to see what this is all about. 
now that it's been a few years later and this is the first time I've actually done like a real deep dive, like I'm genuinely curious what you guys thought in terms of like general impressions of this album, because my thoughts are really all over the place, uh, much like this album. So Rob, I'd love to hear sort of your general impressions here. Yeah, thanks. So full disclosure, I've heard this too. I probably heard it for the first time, maybe seven years ago or Maybe a little more. I've actually I saw Thundercat. It was the last public event I went to right before the pandemic shut oh, everything no down. And it was intense. I think intense is the right word for how I felt about it. There's a lot of strobe lights and a lot of notes being played. <laughs> but it's very hyperactive. I think that on this relook, you know, we always talk about it. I had heard the record before. I was kind of aware of its general gestalt. But I hadn't really done a deep, close inspection of it. So that was what this week was about. It's very hyperactive. I think in my mind, I thought it would be more of a showcase for his bass playing, which is monstrous, is really the only word to describe. His chops, clearly, we're going to talk about. And you see him a little bit on this. But to be honest, on closer inspection, I liked the album a little less than I had liked it in my memory. So that's that's sort of where I'm I'm coming from. He does some interesting things. We can talk about him. It's not bad. It's smooth, like we alluded to, but it gets old for me. I hear that. Yeah. What What do you think, Adam? This was my first. I had heard of Thundercat before, but this was my first time ever hearing a a note of it, let alone an entire album. So it was completely new for me. I think Rob kind of nailed it. I would actually say it's frenetic and disjointed. But you hear so many of the influences that we've reviewed on prior albums from Parliament and Jocko. And it's like, this is what the, not the end point, but this is a continuation of all of those threads. You know, we talk about what makes an album worthwhile, it's what came downstream from it. Well, if that was the case, then we would stop talking about albums after, what, you know, 1992 or something. Like, when has, how many truly innovative musical things have happened? So I, I found it interesting to see all of those things kind of converge on his style and his sound, but ultimately, I enjoyed it. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, I was actually wondering about you, Adam. I, I wasn't sure where you would kind of come down on this, but... I kind of ended up a little bit more in in your camp, Rob, where this is not a bass record. Like there's a obviously some sick bass playing on this. I mean, I think if you look at Thundercat in general, he he's easily the most popular bassist that's doing anything right now. I think that's safe to say, unless you want to go to like the flea, less Claypool types. (laughs) Yeah, Mono Neon's definitely in that mold for sure in, in many ways. And so... In listening to this album, especially listening to it the first time I did, which was a few years ago, like I said, it reminded me of like when I first started playing bass, I really wanted to figure out like, okay, what what's some great bass music that's out there? And I quickly realized that there's not a lot. I remember going out and buying this like Victor Wooten CD thinking like, okay, well, here's like the baddest bass player out there. Like this has to be good. And it was frankly terrible. <laughs> let me let me guess noodly and uh just like yeah noodly just kind of like a wank fest with an attempt at some some music to stitch it all together i was really pleased that this wasn't that that this actually felt like more composed music it gave me a deeper appreciation of this idea that like i don't think he's I don't think of him as much of a bassist anymore after listening to this like I definitely view him in that like weird composer songwriter kind of mold but I do agree that but if you listen in the bass work is 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 pretty exceptional I think another thing I was struck by listening to this is I think this is like a classic example of kind of where you listen to something and how you listen to it can really frame how you feel about it because I put this on last week. I was on a a drive for work. I had like a four hour car ride. And so I popped this in on my kind of weak car stereo speakers. And I remember got halfway through it and was just like, this is terrible. Like this is this, I was really (laughs) dreading listening to the rest of it. Right. And I also feel like being patient in forming an opinion was something that I kind of benefited from in this because after I got back, after I had a chance to like let this soak in a little bit, 
Then I started listening to it with headphones in, in the kitchen with certain speakers. And I actually came away with like an appreciation for it, but I don't think this is for everybody at all. I, I think that is absolutely for sure. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And you alluded to something I think we're going to talk about here, which is, well, we're here to decide if it meets the threshold of 1000 and what albums you must hear before you die. And already we're a bit hamstrung by the fact of how modern it is. And I think it's modern in a lot of ways, modern in a literal sense, in that it came out recently, 2015, 16, something like that. Actually, 17. 17. Okay. So I guess I must have heard it for the first time right around when it came out. So the book, which was originally published, I don't know, in maybe the early 2000s, has gotten several updates over the years. And this is obviously one of those updates. But Adam alluded to it. Because it's so modern, how can we say if it has staying power, if it pointed in musical directions, if it influenced other artists? That's, dare I say, off the table. We can kind of only look backward and take it for what it is. Now, we will do that, obviously. But I was just going to say it's modern in a lot of other ways, too. And before I rip into this guy, <laughs> you got to give him credit, not only for being an amazing, and amazing player, which he clearly is. He's a... He's a craftsman. He's right up there with the Stanley Clarks of the world or Jacob Astorius, for instance, right? I think. However, what I want to point out is that he has made weird jazz music hip. He's somehow combined it with the hip hop community. I mean, he's brought, he's made Yacht Rock relevant again to some extent. Right. And he's got this into more people's ears. So there's just, there's something to that right off the bat that I have to give credit for. Yeah, I think you're you're onto something here and it's probably a good sort of entry point into talking about the the artist himself because as I mentioned in the intro, most people I think at least know who he is or certainly like recognize what he looks like because that is a big part of his I'll say persona, but I don't know that it's like a a manufactured persona. I think it's really just sort of who he is. And you're I, I think this might actually be the most recent album that we've done. I think I'd have to look at the you know, do a little fact checking there, but yeah, I think Lord may have been the, if not the most recent, that might be the second most recent now. Okay. With this one. Yeah. Yeah. So super modern. And it, if, if we're talking about Thundercat himself, he, he's a really interesting dude. Right. And he, and I think he's tough to pin down to any sort of specific genre or, or persona, not just as a musician, but as like a personality and sort of like a pop culture figure. Like, I think it's safe to say he's kind of, moved into that space of like near universal kind of recognition in the music scene, which is pretty like rarefied air for a bassist, I would say. Definitely. He truly is a virtuoso bass player who was like born and bred for, for musical stardom or at least mastery of music. He, he plays this weird six string hollow body bass that was custom built by Ibanez. If, if you watch him play hollow body, yeah, it's a full hollow body. I don't That's even think it has crazy. a center block or anything. And it's huge. It looks like he's holding, like he picked up an upright bass or something. <laughs> I don't know if he's on the shorter side, but when he, him holding this bass looks kind of crazy. But along with that, he's a really unique persona. And he's he's a genuine goofball, which I think will be more evident when we go through this album. But his the way he shows up on stage too and i bet you this is how he shows up in like the grocery store too frankly but he (laughs) you know he's usually rocking some kind of pink or yellow dreadlocks he's probably got like a neon pikachu hoodie a wolf hat a dragon ball z costume he's probably known in some senses as much for this like odd fashion style as he is for you know playing but he's he's basically like a big a big nerd in in the best possible way. Yeah, I I listened to a couple interviews with him talking about Alan like you said how you started playing bass and you were trying to find bass music. He did this interview with uh, I don't remember who it was, but they were asking him like what you know, the top 15 songs that really like influenced your style and he across the board uh, like, you know, he even qu- quoted that uh, Jack Bruce, you know, from Creams and and all these funk guys and they're these jazz guys. And so he really it seems like he's a very eclectic and a really well-rounded musical background that he drew from. 
from. You know, so he grew up listening to a lot of the same stuff that that we did. Um, and he was actually, I found this surprising. He was born in Compton, California, which I don't know if it was all like Boys in the Hood, NWA. Like my vision of Compton, it sounds like is maybe different than what it actually was for him growing up. But that's where he grew up in, in outside of LA, of course. And his parents were both musicians. His mom played flute and percussion. And his dad was a a Motown drummer who played with, you know, the Temptations with with Gladys Knight. His name's Ronald Bruner. And the Thundercat started playing bass when he was like four or five, which he jokes around Jeez. by saying that that made him like a late bloomer in his family. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so he grew up around music constantly. Like he was going to his dad's shows. He he was good friends with Kamasi Washington growing up, the sax player. They're their dads played music together, and so they ended up playing a lot growing up. But you mentioned his like pastiche of influences. If you listen to him talk about the stuff he was into growing up, he'll equally talk about Stanley Clark, Mahavishnu Orchestra, Korn, <laughs> 90s hip-hop. Funniest story I heard about him about some of these influences is he talks about when he discovered Jocko Pistorius. Oh, God. And he's like, yeah, when I was like 10, I got into like Jocko, and I was like, oh, wow, this is sick. I was like... My son is nine right now. If he came up to me and was like, yo, check out this new Jocko, I'd be like, what the fuck are you talking about? Ten-year-olds ten are supposed to turn off Jocko. That's what. That's the normal The normal thing. Well, don't forget, too. I mean, you didn't. You mentioned a bunch of genres there, but I think also bebop, classic jazz, right? He, I guarantee you listen to John Coltrane. He listened to Charlie Parker, guys like that. I think who similarly, I think, influenced... Jacob Pistorius, who maybe didn't listen necessarily to bass players, but more to horn players. And so that's a lot of what created that style. And I just wanted to mention, I don't know a ton, a ton about the modern jazz scene, but Kamasi Washington is like considered one of the guys who is pushing jazz forward currently. So, and they had, I passed the record around, but they 20 years ago had a more traditional jazz combo and it rips. I mean, it's, it's straight ahead bebop style jazz they do a version of giant steps where which you've heard a million times right the john coltrane song but it rips so he has chops in a lot of different genres is my point absolutely well and what's funny is i think that was around the time or maybe slightly after that he was touring with suicidal tendencies so if if you haven't heard of them like it's you know it's borderline thrash metal yeah that's and so wild. it just gives you an idea of the just the weird confluence of shit that this guy was into. Yeah, I listened to them. I didn't know them before. I'd heard the name, but two, two play, two major players that people might know went through that band too. One is Robert Trujillo, the bass player who's now plays Metallica, and the other one is the guy that, as of recording, was just announced to be the new Foo Fighters drummer, Josh Freeze. Oh, yes. interesting. Okay. Nice. Which which is also funny because Thundercat's older brother, Ronald Bruner Jr., was the drummer of Suicidal Tendencies when Thundercat played. So, man, they're just like a farm league of developmental <laughs> seriously. talent, I guess. You gotta have chops to play in that kind of band, Damn, that's for sure. seriously. Very true, very true. So, yeah, he was definitely getting, like, a real musical education growing up. He first played his first sort of like break i guess in air quotes was when he was 15 he he played in a, a boy band called no curfew yeah that i think had a minor hit in germany i for the life of me couldn't find a damn thing about this band but i was very intrigued to find out did you guys find anything about that i couldn't find any info about the band but i found the song did you hear the song no okay i'll send you a link we'll drop it here I loved it because you guys know me. I love Hoobastank. So it's like, it's like, it's like, you know, mid nineties, early two thousands, pop rock. Yeah. I guess you could kind of describe it as that, but you know, it was fun. And he looks like a, ba obviously he looks like a baby on the cover. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's remarkable to think about him playing in that genre. So he, he played in this, in this boy band. Then he, he played in suicidal tendencies for a while. And, 
after that, he kind of started to craft his career as like a top sideman. So he he's played in, you know, like a who's who of hip hop artists from like, you know, Snoop Dogg, Mac Miller, Kendrick Lamar, Raphael Sadiq, Erica Badu. You know, so he he carved out this this role as like the the bass player you want, especially if you're in like a hip hop adjacent sort of music style. And it was I think it was Erica Badu and this guy, Stephen Ellison, who goes by the name of Flying Lotus, who really started to push him towards like, hey, you're you you have a unique voice, not just like a vocal voice, but a a voice like an authenticity that you got to get out in the world a little bit. So they started to push him to be more out front to sing a little bit more, which I think he was really reluctant to do, especially like the singing. It's not something that he says comes naturally, which I find hard to believe, <laughs> you know? And then, so he really, his career started taking off from that point. He, he recorded his debut album in 2011, recorded another album after that and, and really kind of, hit the map in a big way by playing bass on that album to pimp a butterfly by Kendrick Lamar, which, which was a kind of a smash hit. And ever since then, he's really been kind of paving his own way. And I, I, I do wonder, and I'm curious your take on this. You know, I think when you grow up in a, in a musical environment like that, you you'd probably develop a confidence that I can just write and play whatever the hell I want. And that's clearly what he did with this album. Like it is, <laughs> He clearly does not give a shit what anybody thinks. I have notes all over my page that just say permission to be weird. And that's like, I got so much of that from hearing him. And to your point, like, I don't care. I'm doing what I hear in my head. And, and hearing, hearing those weird ideas on tape sometimes gives the listener the permission to be, to be weird. Yeah. Yeah, I, I hear you. Let's go back to for a second. Let's go back to the Kendrick Lamar record, "Pimp a Butterfly." To pimp a butterfly, which I also gave a spin to this week. I think I'd heard it a couple times, but not deeply. Not only did he play bass on it, though, it seemed like the way they were talking that he was he is listed as one of sixteen producers on the album. But it's they were making it out to be like he was part of the creative team behind the record, and that record is also really weird for the record. <laughs> Yeah, great segue into one of our favorite segments here, which is by the numbers. The number 16, I wish I had known that because I would have jumped off with, with with that number 16. He is listed, it looks like, as featured artist and producer. So I don't know if he was like the producer or if he was like a main collaborator. But the reason I wanted to segue into that piece was because we'll start off with the number two, which is the number of Grammys that Thundercat has won in his career. So one of them was four this album for for a track on really butterfly yeah best rap or sung performance for the track these walls okay and then he also won an award in in 2021 for best progressive r&b album for the album it is what it is which he wrote i don't know that he wrote in response to but is highly uh sort of informed by the death of, of Mac Miller, who was like a really good friend of his and that he collaborated with for a number of years. So, you know, he's, he hasn't done a lot in terms of like commercial album sales. Like I couldn't even find a number uh, of sales for this. And it could just be because we're, we're sort of in that era we're where the streaming. Yeah. Right. He's clearly recognized by his peers as a big talent. The number 23, Rob alluded to this earlier, that's the number of tracks on this album. <laughs> I will let you all be the judge of whether that's too much or not, but I think it's I, they, easy to... They still to bring it in under 50, was it 51 minutes? Because I remember scrolling down through Spotify and thinking like, Jesus, is this a triple like disc set? And I got to the bottom and had the total runtime of 51 minutes. So I was like, wait, some of these have to be 10 seconds long. What the hell's going on? Yeah, we could have put together like a two minute focus list if we were, <laughs> <laughs> if we were smart. I, so I mentioned earlier, not a ton of uh, information on album sales, but the number 50 I did find surprising, which was the the peak position that this album held on the Billboard 200. So Still not moving the needle commercially, but the fact critically. that it cracked the 200 to me is remarkable because even the songs that I found catchy, I still didn't feel like they were single radio material, right? Well, listen, I was betting on this other artist's name coming up a little earlier than this, but I guess I'll throw it into the mix. This sounds like Frank Zappa, and that guy cannot sell records to yeah. save his life, as far as I can yep. tell. So 
it's real freaking weird. But can I just maybe you're going to get to the cover photo. But to me, <laughs> if I'm flipping through the stacks, that cover photo is awesome. It's a great it's cover. It's great. Well, picking that up. Yeah. So I would instantly be intrigued. It looks like it's like a 70s sort of like retro throwback. Like when I first saw the cover, I thought it was some kind of like 70s sort of psych funk record. I don't know if it's like inspired by so, something else. Well, two things. I, I thought for a long time it was inspired by the Apocalypse Now scene yes. where Martin Sheen yeah. is coming out of the water. But I found a thing on Reddit that suggested that there's a picture of Jocko that looks quite like that. Oh, Oh, interesting. Little homage there. From like a Jocko documentary, yeah. So, and apparently he's, he's, he said that that was the inspiration. Interesting. Yeah, it is a badass album cover. I, I, I do dig it. And then uh, the number 16, I think I mentioned this earlier, was how old he was when he joined Suicidal Tendencies, which that has to be a trip. Can you, 16, and you're, because they were big at that point, right? Well, and they were probably 10 years older than that, right? Oh, yeah. Right. Like, are they sneaking him into bar? Or are they even playing bars? I, I don't even know what that, what that looks like. Wow. And then the final number, which I sort of had an idea about, but was still a bit flabbergasted, the number being 7000 which is how many dollars it costs to buy the Thundercat signature bass from Ibanez. Now, look, I know the signature basses are a thing. Fender makes them all the time, but they're Fenders. They're sort of like mix and match, like... But come on, get your own bass. Like I, I, I'm honestly surprised that Thundercat would be cool with like someone saying, "Hey, like, listen, I want they, this." <laughs> it's, it's the Krusty the Cloud thing. They drove a dump truck full of money up to my house. <laughs> yeah, like, right. I'm not made of stone. <laughs> for, for folks who may not know, a signature instrument is almost like a an endorsement from a sneaker company, where the instrument company comes to you and says, "Let's build a an instrument to your specs." We'll put your name on it, and then we'll charge five times what it's actually worth. And yes, yeah, it's pretty, I, but it, but it is it is pretty common. I'm oh, sorry, sure, I guess I, yeah. I have to defend it because behind me in the frame on the wall is a Joe Pass Epiphone <laughs> that I bought used. To be clear, just happened. That's I didn't buy it because I love Joe Pass exactly. All these great guitar player. My problem with the Thundercat specific base for aspiring thundercats out there is that i can almost guarantee that 100 percent of the people that purchase this do not need those extra strings <laughs> what well that's my point right so so i have no problem with signature instruments right right yeah what i don't think exactly what you said rob which is it, it's like a lot of people probably don't know this but the the drummer from fish john fishman he's been known to to play the vacuum cleaner on stage <laughs> And someone asked him about it once, like, hey, what's what, what advice would you have for someone who wants to play the vacuum? And he was like, play your own fucking thing. Like, I play the vacuum. Why, why are you going to do that? He doesn't have a signature Dyson with his, his, yes, his exactly. right. missed opportunity. Right. He'd be rolling in it's, cash. So it's like, do you really need someone else's six string MIDI controller piezo pickup yeah. with like sweeping pan it's like there are no, that's so many bells that. and whistles on that thing yeah just from what you're saying there's midi stuff like do you really need anyway yeah so there you have it if you have the cash buy it and let me borrow it because i would love to play that thing it looks pretty sick but <laughs> yeah i was this close to buying the uh the quest love kids kit you know what i mean so again yeah nothing wrong with signature stuff you know there's some name recognition there that i mean you know you trust people even though you've never met them but yeah i'll trust quest love all right well let's uh let's get into the the tunes here a little bit more and see what we're talking about here let's uh let's revisit the track we opened with captain stupido I think I left my wallet at the club. So this is the second track, if I recall, right? The first track is actually just a couple it's seconds It's like a lead-in. Yeah, right. So we've established this is not pop music, but out of the gate, this, do, this song does some really, really odd stuff. One thing that I wanted to point out, and it took, it took me about 15 minutes to figure this out, but there is something that happens where it feels like the timing changes... And we'll drop that here. Jesus, take the wheel. I figured it out. 
the bass converts to triplets and it hits six triplets. So everything else is going at one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. And the bass comes in and goes one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, and hits on triplets for six times. And then that falls back into the regular, the regular pattern. And you completely fall over listening to it, but you somehow wind up landing back into the group. It is just, Rob, you mentioned math rock. Yeah. This blew my mind. Absolutely love this. Again, it's by no means a pop thing, but man, what a what a crazy choice. Well, just to clarify for the audience, what you're saying, I didn't notice that specific thing, but what you're saying is that normally someone would, it would be relatively commonplace to play triplets over a straight beat, three beats over one beat or two, right, maybe. Right. But you're saying he doesn't even maintain that through like a full cycle of measures. And that's part of what's confusing to your ear about Correct. it. Correct. Yeah. Like comes in on it. It like, I think yeah. it might do it five times. And then the sixth time as it continues to four. Very odd. This is a great example of a very Frank Zappa-esque tune, in my opinion. Like this would sit great on Apostrophe or Shake Your Booty oh, yeah. or a, a Zappa album like that. I think it's kind of a throwaway song. But I do think it's a good indication of what you're going to get on the record. And and I have some other notes of some of the timing weirdness that Adam alluded to on other songs. Like that is more so than he shows off his bass chops on this record. He shows off his rhythmic chops. Definitely. It, It almost felt like this song in particular. I agree. It was it foreshadowed so much of what was to come as far as like just the relentless falsetto, the fusion y jazz feel but also like the underdeveloped motif and then it just ends with fart noises and i feel like that <laughs> i was gonna mention anytime like okay feel free to be weird be creative but anytime you end your song with a fart noise i question your judgment <laughs> i get it it's a joke right like the fart wakes him up and he realizes he lost his wallet it's just I don't know. I felt like I was putting a, a prompt into chat chat GPT or something that was like, give me like the weirdness of Zappa, <laughs> the falsetto of D'Angelo, but a touch of like maggot brain era funkadelic. Right. This came out. <laughs> yeah. After smoke started emanating from the machine, it finally spit this out. Can, can I mention another thing that he does? I think he does it kind of throughout the record, but it's, it's a good, easy to hear showcase for it here that disorients you, which is, the line, like line one, will have a high harmony over the main line, and then line two will have a low harmony over the main line, and that going back and forth plays with your ear, even though you know both of them are Thundercat, Thundercat on Thundercat on Thundercat. It's very disorienting. I think this song also establishes the production of the album, which is that you can absolutely tell that he has a bunch of friends who are pop and R&B and hip hop producers because the just the overall the sound of the drum tracks, the synth stuff, everything is so crystal clean. You know, there's there's not a lot of I'll say overdrive or kind of rawness. Everything is perfectly produced. So it definitely came off to me like like a again, produced by a bunch of hip hop artists. Yeah, totally. Well, and he he also he likes to work with you know, not necessarily the same people, but there's this kind of tight little collective that they have where, you know, this guy Flying Lotus, who I don't know much about him, but apparently he's a kind of big deal in the like producing DJing world. And so I think he was sort of his main creative partner for this and someone he's worked with a lot. And so I, I think that that does make it easier to find those pockets of like, hey, what are the things you do well? You know, having that sort of like telepathic relationship. But I do agree. I think the the production is is pretty on point on, on most of this stuff. My last note was that the guitar player on this track is a badass. Just a lot of really fast chords moving around this insane, never ending bass line. So well done. Nate something, I think, was the guy who played guitar on this one. I'm sorry, Zane Carney was the guitarist on this one. The guitar was not something I almost didn't notice, if at all, on this record. And I think part of it's because he's playing like chords on the bass. And by the way, his his bass is set up. It's got the high C and the low B, which gives an extra high note and an extra low note versus like a regular four string bass. And it's his main songwriting vehicle, which is I don't think very common. Yeah. 
I think the reason why you didn't hear much guitar is because it's only listed in one song, which is this one that we just <laughs> listened to, and it's not anywhere else on any other song on the album. So that probably explains it. Yeah, for the non-musicians that maybe listen, he definitely plays bass kind of like a guitar, which makes it hard. And then he compounds that by putting his bass through a lot of traditional <laughs> guitar effects. Right. There's like wah bass, there's fuzz bass, there's phaser bass. Choruses it's, and yeah, so auto There yeah. are times when you really Oof. can't tell. Yeah. All right. Let's, uh, let's move along and, and listen to uh, the next track called Bus in These Streets. drummer on it yeah it's this guy lewis cole i think he was a primary songwriter on this and and i do think he plays drums if i'm not mistaken the keyboards the keyboard sound really sets us apart i think that's some kind of delayed worlds or something something organic sounding with a heavy delay on it that's that makes up the main bulk of the song it sounded very 60s flower powery to me yeah almost yeah. like patula clark's downtown or something which which i wasn't made it stand out from the rest of the material again though I it wasn't one of my favorite tunes partly because i the lyrics just felt like improvised lyrics that he went back and harmonized and now is the part where i acknowledge that i said i loved improvised lyrics from van morrison not too long ago but <laughs> in this case i just i'm not sure he really landed it lyrically yeah i i think that was like a sort of a microcosm of this album in general and one of the problems I have with it. But you could also argue it's one of the endearing things, which is he is not trying to be a lyricist. I don't know that it's quite stream of conscious, but it's it's very plain. It's very plain spoken where he's just saying what's on his mind. And again, like this song needed words, so he just figured he'd fill it with something. <laughs> his falsetto, again, like kind of like D'Angelo, it started to wear on me throughout the album. I really wanted to hear him like rip it, kind of cut loose and, and hit something with his chest voice. He does go into chest voice in other songs, but it's lower. It's a lower register. So you never really hear him reaching for anything. So that that was this. It's specifically stuck out in this song was was the falsetto. And this one also gave me Penny Lane vibes, but I guess that kind of goes back to Rob, your kind of Patool Clark thing, too. Yeah, I hear that. He has a great voice, and I think he's got a great sense of of dynamics and of of harmony. But I almost feel like it's like a uh, it's like salt. Like if you a little bit of salt is it can make something taste really good. But if you just pour like an entire bottle of salt or a jar, or whatever the hell you call a yeah. salt container, <laughs> just overkill. It's just overkill, and so I I I think it does suffer from too much uh, too much salt. I guess. Yeah, I agree. And you can kind of sense maybe he tried to mitigate that by getting some other vocalists in, but I just don't think he did it quite enough. The way that his vocals are, I agree, it's a great voice. And it's a great, and he's producing it very, very well, but it just wears on you. Speaking of great voices, let's break down the track Show You the Way. Tell me if you'll keep, keep it locked. Your heart is struggling, baby. Trying to believe. There might be something that you just can't see. What about you today? It's all 
so this is the uh, above reference track with our uh, yacht rock friends Kenny Loggins and and Michael McDonald, which and they also found it. They, they found an unreleased Steely Dan track that they put it over ah, top. Yes, of, so. I'm so glad you said that. I was like, this has major Deacon Blues vibes, yes! very jazzy chord totally. progression. Yes, this is, this, this is probably the jazziest song in my opinion, chord wise. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definite Steely Dan vibes. And the thing I found funniest about this song was it apparently took forever to actually get Kenny Loggins to agree to do it, to, to buy into it. <laughs> we, we got a spam call. Somebody wants you on their album. <laughs> I got, don't know. His name's <laughs> Thundercat. I don't believe it. He's got pink dreads and six strings on his bass. So. Right. <laughs> He's got a Pikachu backpack on. <laughs> He's got to be legit. So, yeah, it takes him a while to buy into to doing it. But once he does and once he's in the studio and starts tracking, at one point he stops and he goes, hey, you know what we actually need here is Michael McDonald. (laughs) That's awesome. (laughs) And apparently Thundercat was even more blown away and and kind of starstruck, actually, that Michael McDonald agreed to to be involved in this. Can we can we say because I feel like maybe some of our audience won't remember the early YouTube sensation that was Yacht Rock? Where I don't think they, I think they repopularized or at least strongly helped repopularize the term. It was a series of YouTube videos, comedy videos. And the premise of it was that they were going back into the making of all these 70s tracks. And the two dudes were playing Michael McDonald and Kenny Loggins. And the joke was that they were on literally every track that came out in the 70s. <laughs> I didn't and it know was like that. a t- that's great. It was, it's a ten video series. It's an early, early YouTube hit. Probably was made in the pre YouTube era and distributed on VHS tape or something. <laughs> I'll just say that is how the yacht rock term first came into my life, and they're they're hilarious. They're great, poking fun at smooth seventies stylings, etc. But yes, these I really do think of these guys as the Godfathers of yacht rock, and you will find them as these videos will show you. Across so many recordings, not just their own hits, but so many background vocals on so many tracks. I actually didn't know that about the Yacht Rock piece, uh, about like the origins of it. I actually was always kind of wondering about that. Here's what's funny, though, is this is sort of random. This might not be interesting to anybody. But as I was listening to this album for the 10th time the other day, I was listening to this song and Phil texted me. And as I was listening to this, he texted me, you should see if you can sing the song What a Fool Believes by the Doobie Brothers. And I was like, dude, what the fuck? I was literally just listening to a song with Thundercat and Loggins and McDonald. That's so weird. That's also, okay, so similarly for me this week, just scrolling through YouTube, for whatever reason, do you remember when the Doobie Brothers did a guest spot on What's Happening? It, I remember it was like a big deal. Now, What's Happening was from the 70s, but I remember catching reruns of it as a kid. My dad was like, that's the Doobie Brothers, and they're singing in front of Dwayne and the whole family, and they're doing Taking It to the Streets. So that happened this past <laughs> week as well. And this is a fantastic uh, merging of, of fates. Wait, hold on. Correct me if I'm wrong, because I don't think I was on this original texturing, but Tom recently referenced that you guys texting about what a fool believes was the origin of this podcast yes no yeah that's right wow this is getting weird two years ago i i forget who started it up but that song is absolutely amazing go go listen to it (laughs) i feel like we should drop a clip here but we shouldn't because this is about thundercat not about Uh, not about the dudes got us you wound us up on some yacht rock (laughs) well needless to say i immediately texted phil back being like i cannot sing that i'm gonna immediately throw in the towel so thank you for the consideration (laughs) oh the other thing i wanted to point out here this this album i do think it's very sophomoric with the fart noises the masturbation references but it is funny. And I think even in some cases, it's inadvertently funny. For some reason, I could not stop laughing when they introduced when they tra- Loggins. Where he's like, now <laughs> totally we have now. Kenny Loggins. Like, I don't know why. <laughs> I was like a baseball player going up to bat or something. Dude, I, I did the same thing. I just thought that was hilarious. You're right. Whether or not it was intentional, it was great. But what's funny is that was Thundercat doing that. And he even announced himself earlier in the song. He's like, all right, it's your boy Thundercat. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Let's, uh, let's move on to our next track on here. It's called Lava Lamp. Ooh. 
Okay, so my main note on this song, I think it's one of the more beautiful tunes, but I think it's also kind of forgettable. There's not enough of an idea here. But I did want to point out that it's another little rhythmic bit of trickery that I just noticed in the last couple hours on my like umpteenth listen, which is, and I'm going to admit, this is going to get a little obtuse. You guys will know what I'm talking about. But listeners, you're going to have to listen real carefully and count along to get the gist of it. In verse one, he starts all his lyrical lines on beat two of the measure, even though the chords are changing on beat one of the measure, which is already like a just slightly off kilter. And what it means is his melody kind of runs over into the next measure, right? So everything's like off by one beat. Then in the chorus, things sync back up again. Then in verse two and three, he moves it forward to the three beat. No way. Same, same melodies, but like moving throughout the measures. That's pretty sneaky. And I did not pick badass. up on that. Me either. I'm going to go back and listen to that. It's weird. It's the definition of weird, nerdy music stuff. It really is. I saw him do this on a tiny desk concert. Have you seen those from NPR where it's a very minimalized set or very minimalized instruments? And man, it was fantastic. It was just a drummer, him, and... A violin player. A violin. That's right. Yeah, violin. Thank you. And they could all sing like birds and he's singing that melody while he's doing and there's a couple spots where he does this like while he's singing i mean the guy the guy's a virtuoso so it was really impressive uh to hear that that live version so i definitely appreciated that all right let's uh let's move on to the next track it's called them changes track on the record i find it to be the most memorable <laughs> and uh nice and bass heavy kind of proggy this is the one that remind gave me more don caballero battles that sort of math rock vibe which i which i dig i've seen i guess i've never seen don cat but i've seen battles live they're great this is a monster track it's there's this there's a have you guys ever heard of that podcast song exploder there's a yeah, song yeah. spoiler episode about this. It was from 2015. They were much shorter, so it wasn't like super in depth. But he talks about how he made this song and and like, first of all, that drum beat in the beginning, that is sampled from that song "Footsteps in the Dark" by the Isley Brothers, which yeah. was also used as the backing drums for "Today Was a Good Day" by Ice Cube. He actually talks about himself using this beat and he said he felt a little bit sheepish about it because he was like, ah, it's sampling. It's someone else's thing. Like, why don't I just do it? And and then he was like, I'm not going to like close off this option if it's clearly the thing I'm trying to do. Like this drum beat is so tight and so funky. And I have to think he's got like three or four different bass lines like working on this song because he's got the like do 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 but then in the background it's there's just like a dun dun yeah right right and again i think he kept it under three minutes or around it's 308 okay well done sir i know we shouldn't be judging songs based on their length but yeah this tune is badass you guys already said everything i 
Yeah, it, it does illustrate a, a, a small problem I have with the album as well. And we'll actually touch on this in the, the next song that, and final song that we're going to talk about. So Kamasi Washington is actually featured on, in air quotes featured on this out on the song. But I had to listen to this like three or four times to figure out like, where is he even on this? Because and I think it's on the lead out or, or like the fade out of the song is, is when it gets into some of the sacks. But I just feel like if if you're going to use featured artists, I, I think you got to get more out of them. And like I know they're buddies and, and they play a lot, so it's probably no big thing to get him on there. But I, I just I felt like if you're going to bring on this like heavyweight of no, jazz, no, I totally agree. I totally agree. It's a, it's very much an afterthought. It's pretty much he only starts playing it when they hit the fade out almost. And it reminds me of being on a cooking competition show. They go like, we want you have a secret ingredient. We need that to be the star. You know, we need to feature <laughs> yeah. we need the dish to feature that. It can't just be buried in there. And a sax would have fit so well right in the middle with some ripping solo or some counter melody. I mean, he, you you hear it as it trails out, and you're like, oh my god, that could have been amazing. So I want to counterpoint the song length thing, because I agree, normally when songs go on too long, of course, that is, that is a problem, if they don't have more to say. But I almost feel like he has, his idea of keeping the songs really short has hamstrung him a little bit for stuff like this. Because you're right, I could have used, in each individual song, I think there was more opportunity for differentiation. And I know that he's such a monster composer, not just a player, but a composer, who could have easily written other sections to those songs. Or added in ripping solo, the occasional ripping solo would have worked for me too, that would have expanded the the runtime, but I think it would have been a good trade-off in some cases. It kind of goes back to when I made that stoned joke earlier, because... It's like he's got this ADD approach to songwriting where he's got these fragments of ideas that he doesn't really finish or do anything with. 175 tracks, two albums. <laughs> They're each, each song is 10 seconds long. <laughs> I'm sure it's been done. You're right, yeah. All right. Speaking of failed cameo appearances, let's take a listen to our last track on the focus list, which is Walk On By. drum machine beat it's it's probably some kind of 808 like you know it's got that vintage sound but man the drum beat doesn't do anything and i don't know much about kendrick lamar i know he's very respected i've heard his some of his stuff but i don't know how he's viewed as like his hip rap chops but i mean i I thought his verse was really weak personally i think it's definitely his style i'm certainly not an aficionado of him so it's kind of a style that's popular now but I think he's known also for combining that with a lot of very strange production elements and changes and kind of similar to what we're talking about with Thundercat. I felt like the song's only purpose of existing was to get Kendrick on the record. So it, it felt weak in that sense. But to give it a compliment, I would say that lyrically, the song seemed to have a concept behind it, which was a bummer, which was about, I don't want to drink alone. And I'm at the end of my rope and things are like going. It was depressing lyrical content so it felt like at least he put some effort into that that's that side of it thundercat did that is i found the some of the effect on the the keyboard and the bass 
were so heavy. I think Rob, you had mentioned earlier that you know turning on every <laughs> every machine in the studio and yeah. the bass the bass has such a oh yeah that it was very distracting to the point where I I really need to hear the lyrics just because that that garbled this you know in in my ears was a little rough. So see, I thought that might have been all bass. Yeah, from wah bass to weird detuned oh, yeah, effect bass to synth yeah. modded bass. That, yeah, might not even be a keyboard. You're right. Yeah, he's got so much shit that he's putting his bass through that it it half the songs have that like underwater feel where it's either like octave into envelope filter or like a synth it's there's there's a lot of weird shit happening with the with the bass tone for sure all right well i'm kind of curious as to how this one is going to end up i'm not sure i i have a real sense so let's uh get into the moment of truth which is does this album belong on the list rob what do you say Man, it's really hard to stay internally consistent, but I'm going to say yes, because I like it when weird wins. This is weird AF. This is so far out into the stratosphere. I feel like it's worth listening to, and I do feel like it is the culmination of many genres that you don't often see combined. We have talked a lot about a lot of genre smashes on this podcast punk and ska, free jazz and punk, punk and funk, the dreaded punk funk. <laughs> Thankfully, there was no punk in this one. But Yacht, Yacht Rock and uh, Zappa. <laughs> and Neo Soul. and yeah, right. I just don't feel like you're going to hear something like this again. And as you mentioned, Alan, he is he's a talent that I think must deserves your attention, very generally speaking, and he's become a ubiquitous name in the music industry. And this is clearly him at the driver's wheel. So for those reasons, even though it's not for everybody, I said go ahead and give it a listen. Excellent. All right. What do you say, Adam? Hey, all right. So this is Adam, and I will make this short. He is a legit musical sponge, and this is what happens when you squeeze it. So I'm going to say, yes, you need to hear this album. Ah, squeezing the sponge. All right. Dig it. (laughs) Well, it uh, doesn't matter what I think, but I, I'm also going to say I think yes. And we talked earlier about the recency of this, and I struggled with that a lot because where I came to with this was he strikes me as the kind of guy who is eventually going to put out something that, like, no doubt home run will belong on the list. But he's he's still so early in his career. I think he's he's not even forty, right? And so he, I think I think the best is yet to come for him. If I take this album in isolation, I'm honestly not sure. It could be one of those rare albums where like I view it positively, but I'm not sure I can say that everyone should listen to it. But because he is such a he he's just such a powerhouse musician and. This is probably his his best complete work, or at least his most highly regarded work in some sense. That I'm gonna say yes, but I I do I do struggle a little bit with with some of the recency and, and some of those other factors. So, Thundercat, congratulations! It's a clean sweep, and you're on the list. And maybe you'll put another one on the list in the not too distant future. And if you happen to hear this podcast give us a call you seem like a cool dude he seems like the guy who would actually reach out and be like hey what's up man you guys want to hang out (laughs) (laughs) he is a really cool dude like he's straight up just like i still play video games all the time i watch way too much anime and (laughs) sometimes i drink a little too much and i play music like that's just his life and he's just does seem like a really cool dude not that he needs our approval but he has it now (laughs) yeah all right, so let's uh, let's move on to see what we have in the old uh, mailbag. Rob, what do you got for us today? Uh, yes, thanks, Alan. I've been a little behind on the mailbag. We appreciate you guys writing in to 1001albumcomplaints at gmail.com, letting us know what you think, what you like, what you don't like, what you want to inform us about. We love learning. But here's a couple recent missives listener doug writes i just wanted to write you guys to thank you for combining humor musical expertise and an open mind to give me what has quickly become by far my favorite podcast i've never gotten too deep into podcasts before but i'm always interested to learn about music but there's always something that makes me stop listening 
Other streams are usually too dry or over-opinionated or abrasive, and I was fully expecting to listen to one of your episodes, Dark Side of the Moon, of course, then tune you out afterwards, but you guys grabbed me with the perfect mix. In every episode, you give a lot of interesting background, you dig deep enough into music theory to make me think, but not wear me out, and yet tie it all together with a healthy dose of humor. While I might not always agree with your takes, for example, Marcy's voice is intentionally out of pitch, Adam is 100% wrong, how dare he? <laughs> I paraphrased a little there. He did mention, he did mention Marcy, though. Right, You've right. turned me onto a lot of music that I never would have looked further into otherwise and given me a hell of a fun time in the process. Thank you, awesome. Doug. Appreciate wow. it. Thank that you. A, thank you. I know. Very, Remarkable. very, very nice mails. And I have one more that is also equally effusive, perhaps. This is Sam coming to us from the UK. He writes, you've... Actually, I should start by saying, he writes, Dear Tom, Alan, Phil, Rob, and all contributors. Sorry, Adam. You're <laughs> off the list. <laughs> I'm fine. Is, this, is it from Morrissey? Is he the one that wrote this? <laughs> Good call. Uh, Sam writes, you've helped me enjoy albums again. Hot damn. I've enjoyed every episode since I started listening. You've highlighted albums that I had previously dismissed, given me insights on those I already loved, and made me question many of my opinions, particularly those about one's albums I hadn't heard in some time. As a UK-based listener, I've also been interested to hear where your sentiments lie and therefore where my cultural preconceptions might vary. For instance, Weird Al forms a significantly smaller part of my musical history than Prodigy does. (laughs) (laughs) I know, it's funny. We do talk about Weird Al a lot. That's Tom. That's Tom. It's it's, it's a Tom and Adam kind of thing. I I don't really, I mean, I respect him, but I don't have a strong opinion. Anyway, he goes on to say, and I wish Phil were here to receive this. Not quite a compliment. Some time ago, you asked who you sounded like. My only comment on that is that whenever I hear Phil, I'm convinced that Wayne Nedry from Jurassic Park, a.k.a. Newman, (laughs) is giving me his wonderfully well-informed, insightful, and humorous thoughts on recorded music. Check the vending machines. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for being something of a musical lifeline for me, and I look forward to the next 18 years worth of episodes. And he closes it out with Boosh. Oh, damn. That is wow. awesome. Sam, Checks well done, the sir. So, so Despite please. that I got a snub, man. Right. <laughs> did something to piss him off. I think it was the Morrissey thing. You're right. Well, he, he mocked Phil, so it kind of so all evened out. It all, it all evens out. Yeah, all was right <laughs> with the world. Thank you so much for writing. Everyone who writes in, I'm not always the quickest to respond or read these on the air. I admit it. I apologize. But we read them all. We really appreciate it. And we love to learn. We've learned a ton from just the mail that that comes through. So keep sending them into 1001albumcomplaints at gmail.com. All right. Well, um, I'm going to kick it right back to you, Rob. I don't know why I even interjected. Should have just let you. uh, (laughs) What? I I was like the 22nd Thundercat interlude. We'll think of it like that. (laughs) What what is our homework assignment for next week? Yes, yes. The Albinator's here at my side. It's got the the Goku haircut, you know, all askew, ready to... I don't, I don't know. What do they do in Dragon Ball Z? Do they throw fireballs around? I don't even really know. I don't know. It's going to do something guy. in an yeah. anime context. That's what I was getting <laughs> at, folks. I didn't really prepare for this joke. <laughs> but let's go ahead and spin that bad boy and find out what our homework is this week. So, drum roll, please. Without further ado, next week we shall be listening to... T-Rex is the band, and the record is called Electric Warrior. What's the what's the big T Rex song that I know I know? Bang a gong, get it on. There, there you go. All right, all right. Now I do not know this album. I'll be honest. I feel like it should be required viewing to watch the uh, Midnight Special. Is that what that was? Burt Sugarman's, or was that it, or is that different? Yeah, yeah, that's it. There's like the song is probably five minutes, but the video performance is like fifteen minutes, and let's just say cocaine's a hell of a drug. <laughs> <laughs> I do know this one. I, it's a fun one. He's an early, he's an early glam British rocker who was buddies with David Bowie and those guys back in the day. So, oh, is this Mark Bolan? Mark Bolan, yeah. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, nice. nice. Yeah. So, it should be a fun one. We hope you join us by listening to T Rex's Electric Warrior along with us this week. And now, I'll throw it back to Alan. 
All right. Well, we appreciate you hanging in there with us this week for 1001 Album Complaints. I'm Alan. I'm Rob. And I'm Adam. Boosh. Oh, Boosh. Telling me the Boosh are going to boosh for me.